Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. A jam-packed program today. Two candidates for U.S. Senator from California. This hour, it's Katie Porter coming up in a few minutes, the Orange County-based member of Congress. And next hour, it's going to be Barbara Lee, who represents Oakland and the northern Alameda County area, considered to be one of the most progressive members of Congress, also running for the U.S. Senate. We'll talk with Congressmember Lee next hour on the program. But we begin with what's going on right now, the very high stakes U.S. Supreme Court oral arguments on whether former President Trump should be able to be excluded from the Colorado ballot. The implications of this, of course, are absolutely huge. And joining us, professor of law at the University of New Mexico, a specialist in constitutional law, criminal law and procedure, is Maryam Aranjani. Professor Aranjani, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Larry, for having me today. Before we get into the specifics of the arguments that have been presented, what's your sense of the tone of this and the ways in which the justices are generally responding with their questions? That's a great question. So we've already had about two hours of argument this morning, um, and the justices seem eager to clarify a number of points that either were made or were not made in both parties' briefs. Um, there's lots of questioning, uh, including, you know, opportunities. Uh, it seems that there are some justices that have, ha- you know, been eager to ask questions that haven't had a chance even. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and there's wide participation among the justices in the questioning. And uh, you have signed on to an amicus brief here uh, coming from the position of, of the First Amendment. And and I know that I'm sure there are all kinds of um uh, briefs that have been coming in, because there's so many different aspects to this. Can you give us a sense of, of how much participation there is by legal scholars around the country? Sure, Larry. Um, so my understanding is that there have been, there were 78 briefs filed, wow. uh, amicus briefs filed, yes, in this case, which is quite a large number. Um, but, but uh, you know, but that's not atypical for cases of this magnitude. As a matter of fact, some Observers have said, you know, that's on the lower end uh, of the of the count um, for some controversial cases. However, given the timeline and how quickly the court granted cert and then set the oral argument, I think, you know, that's it's quite remarkable that that in one month, 78, uh, you know, groups were able to file uh, amicus briefs in this case. Let's talk about the First Amendment considerations here. That aspect of this and the president's speech, um, what are the factors the justices are likely weighing? Sure. So, you, you know, on appeal to the to the Supreme Court, there wasn't much mention of 
the First Amendment. And so far in the oral arguments, it really hasn't come up yet. Um, the, the arguments are continuing as we as we speak with one another, Larry. But so far, that hasn't been raised. But but in general, in the case, which we know started in the Colorado trial court and then was heard again on appeal by the Colorado Supreme Court, there were some claims by President Trump that uh, that he his free speech rights were uh, violated through the, or, or would be violated through application of the disqualification clause um, to him. So our brief, uh, the First Amendment scholars brief addressed that question. Um, and, and, you know, I can go into greater detail if you're interested in hearing more. And we also addressed the First Amendment uh, right of association claim that that was made uh, through uh, the friend political party, uh, Amici, uh, the James Madison Center in our brief. All right. We're talking with University of New Mexico professor of law, Maryam Aranjani, talking with her about the case this morning. If you have questions for the professor, you can join us at 866-893-5722. This is not to opine. This is really to ask questions about what the justices are considering with the arguments presented to them. And as Professor Aranjani just said, those arguments are continuing. This is a particularly long session of the High Court this morning. And in fact, if you want to listen to uh, the proceedings live, we are offering the feed of that from NPR at LAist.com. It's there if you want to listen to the feed of that. But we're going to bring you up to date on, to this point, many of the arguments that have been made. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at LAist.com. Please include your location and first name. So this case stems from a section of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution that's meant to keep former office holders who, quote, engaged in insurrection from regaining power. So Professor um, is part of what's taking place today, an effort to to define what that means. Uh, yes, although it's interesting. So far, the focus really has been on the idea of whether the president is an officer um, under the language of the third, you know, of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, the, what we've been referring to as the disqualification clause, which was, of course, the primary argument made by Trump um, in this appeal to the Supreme Court, is that he was not intended, the president is not intended to be an officer for purposes of disqualification. And the justices are, are asking lots of questions about that argument. And is is one of the questions that's been asked whether um, what the reasoning would be if the president wouldn't be included uh, in that category of the 14th Amendment? Yes, absolutely. Right. They're sort of entertaining from both sides. Um, you know, the 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 question both both from uh, President Trump's side and from the um, the side of the Colorado voters. Uh, you know, what what would be the outcome, uh, you know, if they decide that he is considered an officer or that a president, um, generally speaking, would be considered an officer or not? Are you surprised that the free speech issue has has not come up to this point or been limited in its reverence? You know, that's a good question, Larry. I, I think the fact is this is a complicated case. There are a lot of questions, um, novel questions for the court. Um, under this factual uh, circumstance and novel constitutional interpretation question. So, um, you know, as, as a First Amendment scholar, I'm interested in, in the First Amendment issues, but I'm not surprised. And, and perhaps in the 
the rest of the argument, uh, you know, that, that will ensue, it will come up. But so far, it seems like they're sticking to the briefs that were filed, uh, you know, before the court in okay. terms of the arguments they're considering. So uh, I, I know that, that the brief uh, filed by the former president's team didn't really focus on whether his due process rights were violated uh, through Calif- uh, Colorado's process of reviewing the cases. Um, but has that been at all a subject of discussion so far? It has. It has. It has come up uh, several times. Several justices have raised that question of, of um, uh, the due process concerns. And that's one ground on which they could, you know, they could sort of issue a holding was that uh, it's not clear his due process rights were violated. I'll just um, mention that um, Jonathan Mitchell, counsel for the, pre- for the former president, uh, indicated that he, when he was asked, um, he indicated that uh, you know, they didn't really focus on that argument in the brief because they didn't think it would um, really resolve, you know, the, the, the ultimate issue for them because what could happen if the justices did find that he, he didn't receive adequate process is that, of course, then it would be remanded and then the Colorado courts um, could, you know, simply follow whatever procedure would be required and still come to the same outcome of removing him from the ballot, which was not you know, which is not what the, of course, the uh, Trump's team is going for here. Uh, we have a question from Mike in Long Beach. Is there a balancing test being considered in the First Amendment argument? Balancing tests have been applied to First Amendment cases in the past, Mike says. Um, you know, in terms of balancing, one of the arguments that we make in our brief is this idea of where there is a clash between one constitutional protection or provision and another that the court has tried, generally speaking, to harmonize uh, those those two provisions in such a way as to not uh, not issue blanket announcements that one provision is more valuable or more important than another. Um, So in a way, that's a balance, I suppose you could say uh, that, you know, we're trying to harmonize these two clauses and that's we argue that Section three is actually quite narrow in scope. Uh, it is of high importance, but, but, but quite narrow in scope. And that under the circumstances here, um, you know, they, they, because it is so narrow and doesn't really affect speech in any broad way um, that, that, and it was later enacted after, you know, uh, you know, in, as a, as a um, part of the 14th amendment, of course, passed after the civil war, um, that that is, uh, you know, the, the recency of that relative to the prior uh, provision is um, is important. We're talking with University of New Mexico professor of law, Miriam Aranjani, with us on AirTalk. We're taking your questions about the Supreme Court, hearing arguments today in whether Colorado uh, can uh, remove former President Trump from the ballot. Uh, obviously, the implications of this are huge, uh, given however the high court decides on the constitutionality of that. Christopher and Culver City, getting to the issue of how narrow or broad the court's decision could be here, asks what kind of cascading effect could this have for other states based on the decision coming out of this one? That's a very good question, and it's one that the the courts have. Uh, I'm sorry, the justices have brought up this morning during the argument. Is you know uh, uh, a concern about uh, the effect of the decision uh, on on sort of the finality of this question for this particular election cycle? Um, they clearly want to consider, and and some of them are very seem very interested in avoiding 
any uncertainty that could be created as far as um, you know scrambling uh, at the state level to try to comply with the decision. In other words, I think they want to try to offer some holding that will uh, that will you know kind of settle the issue. Professor, thank you very much for joining us this morning. And and I know you're tracking this right in the middle of it. We'll let you get back to the arguments. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. From the University of New Mexico, professor of law and uh, filer of an amicus brief, uh, in this case, Maryam Aranjani. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk with a former law professor from UC Irvine, now a multi-term member of Congress running for the U.S. Senate, Katie Porter, whose district is in Orange County. We'll talk with her when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3, and I remind you that our voter game plan has been launched. You'll find it at LAS.com slash voter game plan or VGP. A chance for you to see about all the races that are going on, get information on what's there. You'll find our interviews with 11 of the 12 candidates for L.A. County District Attorney, for example. You'll find our interviews of the candidates for U.S. Senate. Speaking of which, we're pleased to have with us Member of Congress Katie Porter, whose district uh, takes in a significant swath of Orange County. She's a former UCI law professor and candidate for the U.S. Senate. Congressman Member Porter, thank you so much for being with us again today on Air Talk. It's wonderful to be speaking with you. So let's start uh, and and kind of go back for those who are less familiar with your background and start with what was the biggest factor in your decision to give up a professorship at a highly regarded law school to enter politics? Well, I'd spent my career working as a consumer advocate, um, taking on big banks who had cheated families, um, particularly communities of color, into predatory home loans, and then were cheating them on the way back out during the foreclosure crisis. And one of the things I saw as I worked around California and worked on that issue was the degree to which Washington wasn't siding with everyday families, wasn't investing in making sure that we could 
um, afford homes and keep them, and to the degree to which policy in Washington was being written by big banks. Um, so I ran for Congress in 2017 and was elected in 2018. Um, and when I got to Washington, one of the things I learned was that it was actually worse than I thought. Um, the special interest playbook that I had kind of seen with big banks um, is the exact same thing I have now seen and taken squarely on with big oil, with big pharma, with big health insurance. How, and so I was just going to ask, how would that change if you were elected to the Senate and and you were pursuing further consumer protection measures? Uh, how would it differ being in the Senate versus the House? Well, senators serve on more committees. Um, and so for me, as someone who cares a lot about oversight and sometimes uses a whiteboard to do that, it means being able to tackle some of the industries that I don't think um, Washington has really put a focus on. Um, and so, and I also think that when we think about California and what an amazing and diverse state this is, as Senator, you really get to see how all those pieces fit together. So to work on agricultural issues, to work on making sure that our defense dollars are going to keep the people who serve us um, safe and cared for rather than to line the pockets of the defense industry. Um, and so you have a bigger, broader um, array of issues you get to work on. I think the other thing is the Senate is a place where my style of kind of honest, direct, fresh, person-to-person -person relationship building really is how you get things done. Uh, you have experience being in the minority uh, with the slim margin in the House currently. If in the Senate, obviously, if it stays a Democratic majority, that gives you a significantly more prominent voice if you were elected to the Senate. But if if Democrats ended up in the minority, what do you think you might still be able to accomplish even in that circumstance? So absolutely continuing to work on tackling corruption in Washington. The sad truth is this is not a, a Democrats versus Republicans problem. This is a career politician, Washington establishment versus all of the rest of us who can't figure out why Washington doesn't deliver for us problem. So I am the only candidate in this, only elected official in this race who doesn't take corporate pot money. Um, I'm the only candidate who refuses um, checks from federal lobbyists. Um, I'm the only candidate who opposes earmarks, the like things like the so-called bridge to nowhere, these pet projects. And the truth is Republicans, there are people in the Republican Party in power who care about these kind of good governance, anti-corruption issues. Look, I've led the fight to ban Congress members from being able to trade stocks. And the truth is, when we had Democrats in charge of the House of Representatives, they didn't put that for a vote on the floor. When we have Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives, they didn't put that for a vote on the okay. floor. Yet we know 90% of Americans think that Congress members shouldn't be um, able to trade stocks while they're serving our country. We're talking with Katie Porter, member of Congress representing the 47th Congressional District, which is a wide swath of Orange County, including Irvine, Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa, uh, Newport Beach, the like. We're talking with her about her candidacy for U.S. Senate. You mentioned earmarks and your opposition to them. And of course, proponents of earmarks say this is an opportunity to really target uh, federal money to important projects that the member of Congress knows something about and and can be uh you know provide an assist to so um do you see no role at all for earmarks you you think that it's essentially a waste so california's next senator needs to be a 
fierce warrior for making sure that we are getting our share of tax dollars and, and the government is meeting our needs. And, and we, that is not happening right now. Our biggest crisis is the cost of housing um, and the homelessness crisis that's resulting from that. And Washington has paid almost no meaningful attention to housing for decades now, has made no real investment in tackling that project. So the mismatch between kind of what Californians need help with, what problems they need solved, and what Washington is doling out dollars for, that's a real problem. And the solution to it is to have someone who is a really, really fierce advocate for California and who's gonna wield that power on behalf of ordinary corporations, not their corporate donors. The problem with earmarks is that they allow a politician to, to make decisions based on their personal preferences, based on friendships, based on endorsements, based on where, what part of the district they might live in, for example, based on who's donated to them to make decisions about the greatest need. So members of Congress are not structural engineers, generally speaking. We can't look at two bridges and know which one is gonna crumble first. Um, and so earmarks invite corruption. There is a long, ugly history of that. Um, and that's why President Obama um, said that he would veto any attempt um, to put earmarks in an appropriations bill in 2011. And we see other senators, Democrat and Republican, um, folks like okay. John Tester, Maggie Hassan on the Democratic side who oppose earmarks. The other real problem with earmarks is, as Californians, we only get two senators. So that's 1 50th of the Senate. But we are about a quarter of the country's population. So an earmark system just structurally is always going to shortchange Californians and reward individual politicians who get to go to a ribbon cutting and have their name in the newspaper. Uh, we're talking with member of Congress Katie Porter, candidate for U.S. Senate. You mentioned about the federal government doing little in your view on problems of housing and homelessness. So if you were elected to the Senate, what would you initiate in the way of federal support to California and other states struggling with this? So Washington hasn't made a major federal investment in housing in about 80 years. Um, and so I think the first thing is we need a candidate, uh, a senator who really understands that, yes, cities, counties, states need to do their part in building more housing and bringing down costs. But the federal government has got to be an active player here. I released um, yesterday my Housing for All plan. It is a 10-point plan that is designed to increase the supply of housing, especially kind of entry-level starter homes to expand homeownership for housing for our workforce bring down rental costs, focusing especially on seniors, students, people with disabilities, um, and, and really increase homeownership opportunity here in California, knocking down local barriers, for example, and investing in innovative home manufacturing. Um, this is a leadership problem. And so when I say that we need a big federal investment in housing, of course, that's going to have lots of dollar figure, lots of zeros behind it. But it's also an investment in imagination most federal leaders simply want to point the finger down downhill, down at the state, down at the county, down at the local government on housing. The crisis is deep. It is longstanding. And we need the federal government to lean into All helping right. California solve it. We're talking with Katie Porter, member of Congress, candidate for the U.S. Senate. Polls show Americans with continued high anxiety about the economy, particularly rising costs of food, gas and utilities, what would you advocate if elected to the Senate to try and deal with those areas of inflation? 
in my role on the oversight committee, I have shown that about half of inflation that we have been experiencing here during the pandemic was not coming from labor costs or supply chain. It was coming from increased corporate profits, especially in companies that are monopolies. And it's it's really hard, I think, as a regular shopper, as a regular Californian, to think of an industry where there's not monopoly power. Um, it's, it's on the airlines, it's in book publishing, it's in the bread industry, the pasta monopoly for crying out loud. And so I think one of the things we have to do is continue to create more competition um, that will help drive down prices. Um, and then with regard to things like gas, particularly, we need to continue to invest in clean energy, um, make ourselves less fossil fuel dependent, um, and, and that because that's an unstably priced global commodity. And so that's always, a, I think, a, has long been my entire life, really, the 50 years. I was really born during the, the kind of last big gas crisis in the 1970s. And so I think it's time for Washington to put an emphasis on energy that we can create right here. Congressmember uh, Porter, let's talk about providing additional financial support for Ukraine and Israel's war efforts, which is proving contention uh, contentious. What's your position on aid to both countries? I support aid to both countries. I think it is incredibly important that the United States in this moment um, be a real leader for um, democracy and stand against terror and stand against the kind of authoritarian um, threats that we are seeing from people like Putin. Um, I think the efforts of Republicans to kind of tie all this together with our challenges at the border um, is wrongheaded. I think the best solution here is to have um, up and down votes um, on the these issues and to have them in ways that we make sure they can get all the way to the president's desk and be signed. Um, and so I, I do support additional aid to Israel. Um, the more that we can reduce casualties on both sides of that conflict, um, the sooner we can we can get to a, an end to the conflict and to a ceasefire, a release of the hostages um, and new leadership for Gaza, the better. Um, and so I, I think it's important that these bills come up and that okay. they come up one by one. So the American people can know where their representatives stand. Uh, Katie Porter, member of Congress, candidate for the U.S. Senate with us. Uh, speaking of Israel and its war in Gaza, uh, the Netanyahu government continues with its position that it will not cease its military operations until Hamas is removed from governance of Gaza and the Israeli hostages are freed. Do you agree with that position or disagree with it and why? I think the United States needs to be pushing Israel to understand what its real strategic long-term outcome is, which is a safe and secure um, and thriving Israel. And it's not going to get there if there is not the ability for the Palestinian people living in Gaza and the West Bank to have a state and to have the ability to govern themselves. And so I think what we're seeing in this moment is you know, efforts from and, uh, the prime minister to kind of push back against and even reverse 75 years of long-standing international foreign policy um, around a two-state solution. And I think the United States is right to question the prime minister about, about the wisdom of, of backing away from that long-term strategy. I do think that you know, Hamas is, and the United States has long recognized that Hamas is a terrorist organization and that it, what it did on October 7th um, so tragically illustrated for the world um, that Hamas is engaged in terrorist activity. I think 
um, eradicating Hamas and having new leadership for the people of Gaza is a, can be a shared goal um, for all of the countries of the world, but we need to make sure that we are not backing away from the longstanding commitment to a two-state solution that we've had. We're talking with Katie Porter, member of Congress from Orange County and candidate for the U.S. Senate. Uh, the large numbers of asylum seekers at the U.S. southern border have become a significant political challenge for Democrats and the Biden administration. What do you think the president should do in the absence of a deal in Congress? The president needs to continue to invest as much as he can in creating a humane and orderly system um, for lawful immigration. He inherited um, a terrible mess at the border created by Donald Trump's um, cruel policies. A lot of the chaos that exists at the border is directly a result of, as you mentioned, Congress's failure politically to tackle immigration. Um, and so I think Washington's inaction on immigration really is hurting all of us. And Congress needs to step up here um, and come to the table. We need immigrants. Um, we need them in our workforce. We need them in our society. We need doctors. We need nurses. We need scientists. We need farm workers. Um, and so Immigrants make our country stronger, uh, make our economy stronger, but we all should want and be able to agree on that an immigration system should be lawful, it should be orderly, and it should be humane. And Republicans are really attempting, and we've heard Donald Trump say this explicitly, he wants the chaos and the suffering and the challenges that our border communities are facing, that our asylum seekers are facing. He wants it to continue for his personal political gain. And that is a really, I think, disgusting and wrong way to think about um, the immigrants who, who come to this country seeking a better life and, and will actually give us all better lives. Congressmember Porter, we're just about out of time, but I want to give you an opportunity to speak directly to our listeners and uh, to make your case for why you think they should give you their vote? There's such a real need in Washington for fresh vision, for multi-generational leadership. Um, we need leaders who are not career politicians. Um, we need people who are living, as I am, as a single mom raising my kids here, um, who are living the every the challenges facing everyday Californians. Um, and so I am the, you know, the candidate who I think um, has the right mix of both experience and demonstrated results in Washington, um, combined with kind of a willingness to shake up the Senate um, and to and to re and to sort of refresh our democracy and, and rebuild trust in it in the in the wake of all of the years of, of big money of corporate interests controlling the agenda. Thank you so much, Congressmember Katie Porter of the 47th District in Orange County, candidate for the U.S. Senate. Thank you very much for joining us on Air Talk. Thank you. And just a reminder that all of these interviews with the candidates, whether L.A. County District Attorney or the U.S. Senate seat in California, long held by Diane Feinstein, you'll find those interviews with links when you go to LAist.com slash VGP for voter game plan. That's LAist.com slash VGP. Coming up next hour, another candidate for the U.S. Senate seat and a fellow Democrat of Congressmember Porter's will talk with Barbara. Lee, who represents Oakland and Northern Alameda County. That's coming up next hour. Next on Air Talk this hour, a look at when it's time to take a break in therapy, to call an end to your current series of therapist appointments. 
how do you make that decision? If you have advice on it based on your own experience, give us a call at 866-893-5722 or email your thoughts to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. A recent piece in The Atlantic by Richard A. Friedman argues that many people currently in therapy don't necessarily need to be. Some view going to therapy as a regular self-care practice, not tied to an acute mental health challenge. But in Friedman's piece, he says that all therapies share a common goal to eventually end treatment because you feel and function well enough to thrive on your own. I'd like to hear from you what you think of that and whether you're someone who maybe has recently started examining whether you need to continue in therapy. Uh, I welcome you sharing what led to your decision to end therapy when you've done so. Did you stay too long, do you think? Did you prematurely end your sessions? Share with us your experience and what you've learned about uh, the duration of therapy and what's best for you. We're at 866-893-5722. With us is Richard A. Friedman, professor of clinical psychiatry and director of the Psychopharmacology Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical College. And we're talking about his piece, Plenty of People Could Quit Therapy Right Now. Professor Friedman, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, for those who can afford it, and that's a big caveat because therapy is expensive, and who feel that they're getting some sort of benefit on a weekly basis, is there a harm in continuing in therapy, you think, when there's not a specific item of work to be done? I don't think there's a specific harm per se. I was just raising a question about when you know you're ready to stop therapy. Um, It's costly. And um, to the extent that you might not need something, uh, you might want to discover, are you ready to try to go off on your own and see what you've learned about yourself and see what kinds of skills and knowledge you've gained in therapy. And um, it's worth always considering this and asking the question, you know, am I ready to to see um, whether I've met my goals and I'm feeling better enough that I can go off on my own? You know, I, but no, oh, I go think ahead. there's a harm. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, I think for, for 
many of us who've been in therapy at different points in our lives, it's been some sort of an acute challenge, some sort of an issue that we're having difficulty resolving on our own and and need to do a deeper level of self-examination with a professional and, and to talk through with someone objective uh, to get feedback on, on that process. Um, but there is this notion, I, and I think we're hearing this much more frequently today, that therapy, you know, is sort of like uh, a regular self-care practice, like getting your hair cut or, you know, um, and and what do you think about that trend? Yeah, I, I'm not actually sure because we don't really have good data about how common that is, especially because, as you point out, A, it's expensive and B, it's not covered by most insurance. But I think there, and and it's probably related to where you are socioeconomically, but let's say, granted that it exists, the model is kind of like thinking that therapy, approaching it almost like having a trainer, a physical trainer. And if you stop it, you lose the benefit. But actually, my view is, you know, when you do that and you get a trainer, they're actually teaching you something, Mm -hmm. you know, technique and how to do it and what kinds of exercises so that if you stop it, you actually, you've got certain knowledge and skills you bring with you. I mean, yes, you you stop this supportive relationship and you might miss the person, but there's more to therapy than the relationship, although that's a huge part of it. And um, you may be surprised actually how much better off you are. After all, how can you know unless you suspend the treatment what its effects have been? And I've at least found for myself that getting a little distance from the therapy session, but thinking about the themes that were raised, the things that were difficult for me to go through in those sessions, and it, it you know, sort of uh, on my own work through afterward, that there was value in that as well, that, that that can be a therapeutic process distinct from the in-office weekly visit as well. Yes, and and in the absence of meeting on a regular basis, you have a chance to assess what its impact has been on you. And you can even ask your friends and family and loved ones, well, how do you think I'm doing? Yeah, yeah, good point. Richard A. Friedman, professor of clinical psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. Also with us, Lori Gottlieb, therapist and author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, co-host of the podcast, Dear Therapist. Lori, it's so good to have you back with us. We appreciate it very much. Your thoughts on this, and, and, and do you think that there are particular filters that someone in therapy can use to best answer this question when it's time to end? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me, Larry. So I I agree that a lot of therapy actually happens outside the therapy room. We like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that if all you're doing is gaining insight, but you're not using it outside in your life in between sessions, that you're not making use of the therapy. So the, the point is that we do want you to take what we're talking about in the therapy room and then bring it out into the world, into how you navigate through the world. Notice your patterns, notice the ways that your relationships are going, notice your relationship to yourself. And so the idea is not that you are dependent on us. The idea is that you are learning something through the relationship you have with us that you can then apply to your relationships outside. Let's take a listener call from Emma in Echo Park. I understand you're a psychotherapist as well as someone who's been in therapy. What are your thoughts on this? Hi, Larry. Yeah, thank you so much um, for this enriching conversation. Um, Yeah, I got diagnosed with OCD when I was 10, 
and I'm someone who's been in and out of therapy for, you know, 25 years. Um, I really appreciate the idea. So as a, as a therapist, you know, the goal for me is to create self-efficacy in my clients so that they don't, you know, have to be in therapy for the rest of their lives. But something that I think might be missing from this conversation is the idea of a chronic mental health condition like OCD, um, where you might have to keep coming back to therapy, you know, taking a break and then coming back when your OCD flares up or something happens in your life. Um, I kind of think of it like going to the gym of, you know, we might be more, um, able to take a break from the gym, but then we need to have our maintenance sessions and, and go back. Yeah, I, Emma, I appreciate it very much. Lori, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I completely agree that there's a difference between someone coming in for a discrete issue and someone who has a chronic condition where they really need the ongoing support. And I, I agree that, um, you know, when we think about leaving, it's sometimes we'll take a break, but just because someone leaves therapy doesn't mean that they've left forever. Often people leave, they're feeling pretty good, they're functioning pretty well, and then something else comes up in their life and then they come back because they need the support. And that's pretty common. Let's talk with Franya in Pasadena. You're on Air Talk. Good, good morning. I am calling to uh, agree with so much that your panelists have said, but here's my thought on uh, counseling. I believe that when a person walks into the counselor's office, one of the two has a, uh, a, a kind of an obligation to say, you're here for tools or I'm here for tools to deal with my issues, not to be a patient for months and or years, but to figure out what's going on. First of all, doesn't take very long for an honest patient to do that. And then to develop tools for dealing with those issues. And then the patient can be led to thinking about those issues in a certain way, not what to think, but how to think. Uh, I think that's an important approach to uh, therapy that um, may or may not be practiced. Yeah, Franya in Pasadena, thank you very much for that. Lori Gottlieb? That's absolutely true. One of the first things we do in those early sessions is to say, let's understand what you're hoping to get out of coming here. And so that's really the, the treatment planning and understanding what the goals are. And when the goals are reached, it's really important for the therapist to be able to say, I think that we've reached, these are the goals that we discussed. You seem to be doing really well. How are you feeling? And to start talking about, do you have things that you still want to work on here? Or is it time to maybe go out into the world and see how you do? I, I also wonder about timelines, because I found it effective when a therapist said, you know, here's my plan for the next couple of weeks. And then after that, and sort of for for the short term, kind of lay out, here's, here's where we're going. I don't feel constrained by that. I kind of like having a bit of a roadmap. But Lori, what's your opinion of that? I think, again, it depends why the person is there. If you're looking at, I'm trying to deal with something like grief, um, you know, that's going to be something that you're talking about in, in a more kind of um, amorphous way, I think, at the beginning, because grief is very complicated. But if you're talking about, I'm having a problem in this relationship, or I'm having a problem with this particular issue, 
then yes, you can, you can do that. I think every therapist works differently, but I think every therapist should have goals in mind and should absolutely be monitoring those goals and see how far along you are. If people are just coming in and they're sort of downloading the problem of the week, that's not therapy. You can do that by talking to a friend. We're talking with therapist Lori Gottlieb, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone and co-host of the podcast Dear Therapists. Also with us, Richard A. Friedman, professor of clinical psychiatry and director of the Psychopharmacology Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical College. His piece in The Atlantic is really the prompt for our conversation. It's titled Plenty of People Could Quit Therapy Right Now. And we're asking you to weigh in based on your experience when you've been in therapy, if you're currently in therapy. Uh, how you have a sense that it's time to end it, uh, at least for the time being? And uh, what are some of the things that you look at to determine it? We're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in just a minute. Coming up next hour on Air Talk, member of Congress Barbara Lee. She represents Oakland and Northern Alameda County, and she's Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate seat held for years by Diane Feinstein. We'll talk with Congress member Lee coming up next hour here on Air Talk. In case you missed our interview earlier this hour with Congress member Katie Porter, who was also a candidate for that U.S. Senate seat, we'll have all the candidate interviews, including Adam Schiff, who was with us about a week ago at LAist.com slash VGP or voter game plan. That's LAist.com slash VGP, and you'll have links to all of the candidate conversations also, all of them are there for the L.A. County DA's race. Eleven of the 12 candidates agreed to speak with us. All those conversations have been done, and you'll find them there at las.com VGP. We're talking with Lori Gottlieb, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. She's licensed psychotherapist, co-host of the podcast Dear Therapist, and with us from Wild Cornell Medical College, Professor Richard A. Friedman, who recently had the piece published in The Atlantic, Plenty of People could quit therapy right now. Uh, let's talk with Daryl in Mid-City, Los Angeles. You're on Air Talk. Hi, Larry. Daryl here. Um, I agree with, uh, well, in my opinion, I think people need to stay in the therapy because it's like exercising. If you don't keep it up, you fall back to your old ways. And it's just like, you know, my therapist in 1975, I've been in therapy since 1975, and the therapist got me into the 12-step program, which I've been in for like 43 years, and um, it's really helped me. And I continue the therapeutic process, too. You know, I go every other week, and, um, you know, we constantly review stuff, so it's back and forth. So I believe that once you stop, you fall back into your own ways. You don't get well, just like in the 12-step program. You don't get, like, sober and stay sober unless you keep it up on a weekly, daily basis. Daryl, I appreciate your call. Professor Friedman, what do you think? Well, I think that there's validity to what Larry is saying. I mean, there are certain kinds of problems that require an ongoing effort. But when you go to AA and you're part of a support network, that is something that you're doing in your own life, independent of your therapist. And for most therapy, 
which involves, you know, learning certain skills, understanding new things about yourself, you are, I think, would be surprised how much that um, you've actually experienced in therapy, you've internalized. And so, in a sense, if you use the exercise model, the way I think about therapy is, it is a kind of training, but when it's over, you've learned to be your own trainer to some extent. And yes, you can become rusty, you can meet up with all kinds of life stresses after you stop therapy, but you can always go back. It's not it's not a final termination when you leave therapy. The door will still be open. We have a listener call from Rachel in Los Feliz. Daryl, thank you for your call. Rachel, good to have you with us. I have a question about different modalities of therapy and this idea that it should be for sort of addressing a specific thing, if that's what you're looking for. For example, with Jungian therapy, the people I know who have done that have done it for many, many years, often multiple times a week. So I'm just curious about Yeah, that. Woody Allen, of course, so that, jokes about psychoanalysis and that he'll be making payments, I think, past the time he dies in one of his films. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, you know, aimed, it seems to me, on on sort of more tool-based and um, and retraining your brain in, in a given period of time. Lori Gottlieb, you want to uh, share your thoughts on different modalities of therapy? Yeah, that's such a great question because there's not a one size fits all in terms of when people say therapy, a lot fits under that bucket. If you're dealing with, say, OCD and you want to do uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or you're dealing with, um, you know, sometimes for certain kinds of uh, depression, you might be able to deal with, you know, how are my thoughts distorted and, and use CBT for that. In addition to other things, like you might also use medication, you might also use talk therapy. Um, and so I, I don't think that there's a one size fits all. It depends on what is what are your symptoms, what are your issues, and then what kind of therapy would best serve you. And I think that the problem is that when you look at the way that therapy, I think it's great that therapy is out in the world now and it's all over social media and everybody talks about it. But I think when people say the word therapy, they're thinking about one thing and it could be many different things. We just got a listener email that's titled "Therapy spares my loved ones well, loved ones from listening to my stuff," but uses another word. Bernard in West LA, how many therapists actually keep their clients longer than they need them? Because ultimately, it's a revenue source. So, you know, what is what is the impetus to advise their clients to stop therapy, even if they think they should? Professor Friedman. Well, right. There's no getting away from the fact that there's an inherent conflict of interest, but there's an ethical obligation, I feel, for therapists to, you know, in some way go against their own interests temporarily, because they're always going to be seeing new patients, new clients, and to be able to level with their patients and say, you know, we've been together for X number of months, and here's what I think has happened. Here's the progress I think we've made. And I think that you actually have met your goals and you might consider stopping or or suspending treatment. So yes, that, that that's definitely part of the problem, one of the issues in therapy. The other is therapists get attached to their patients just as you know, <laughs> patients funny. are attached to their therapists. That's uh, and, it's hard, and it's hard to see them go. I, I, I could understand where that would be. Jesse in Silver Lake says, for many people, therapy is just too expensive. That's why we end it, not because 
we really are prepared to end our therapy sessions. Uh, and Greg and Sherman Oaks, sometimes hard to tell whether you're making progress or not. You may blame yourself, but maybe it's that the therapist match isn't right. I saw someone new. It was like night and day, but it's tough to know when to make that call. And uh, Jennifer uh, emailed us. My mother's a retired marriage family therapist. I've had therapists since I was eight. As a child, it was helpful to have rapport with someone outside my family and friends with whom I could confide and work my through my emotions. As an adult, I've seen specific therapists for specific goals. But I also believe it's a gift to your family and friends to have someone to unload on besides them. We've all had friends who abused our listening and compassion by confusing friendship with therapy. And Stuart in Pasadena says, I'm a psychiatrist. While I agree, often therapy continues long after the goals have been reached, and the many people continue in psychotherapy unnecessarily. Psychotherapy is a broad subject. There are people who are seeking personal growth without having a psychiatric disorder. Some people continue to gain understanding and personal growth indefinitely. Some wonderful comments that are coming in in emails. I'm sorry I didn't have time to read all of them. I will read them all personally, and that helps inform me for the next time we deal with a subject involving therapy. My thanks to Lori Gottlieb, therapist and author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, co-host of the Dear Therapist podcast, and our thanks to Professor of Clinical Psychiatry Richard A. Friedman of Weill Cornell Medical College. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us on this Thursday. I don't know if you were uh, in a part of town last night who had the downpour that came through. That was intense. I was actually at an LAist event last night with with listeners and uh, just sounded like the roof was coming off. It was amazing. Uh, fortunately, it had stopped by the time I went home last night, but uh, really, really intense. But it looks like uh, we're finally to the clearing skies, albeit cold throughout Southern California. So uh, most areas weathering this, although still damage that's going to take some time to clean up. There's been loss of life and so um, it's just been very, very difficult in, in so many parts of Southern California with the historic rain. Coming up later this hour on Air Talk, it's our TV talk segment. I'm so looking forward to our critics, Steve Green and Eric Deggins, who are going to talk, first of all, about the Super Bowl, which is 
uh, pretty much an incomparable television event in the size, in the scope of it, and its cultural significance is huge, including the halftime show, the ads, of course, uh, streaming this year in addition to its CBS network exposure across the country. So we're going to be talking about the Super Bowl as a television program. Also, we'll be talking uh, about a series starring Ben Mendelsohn and Juliette Binoche, The New Look, which uh, looks at the rise of fashion designer Christian Dior, uh, A Bloody Lucky Day, which is a South Korean thriller about a taxi driver who becomes entangled with a customer who is a serial killer, and uh, many other series that we'll be talking about. So that's a very busy program on TV Talk coming up later this hour on LAist 89.3. We're joined now by candidate for the U.S. Senate Democratic member of Congress, uh, Barbara Lee. Uh, we last hour talked with Katie Porter, also running for the U.S. Senate seat held for years by Diane Feinstein. Congress member Lee, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. My, my pleasure. Nice to be with you. So let, let's talk about your reason to run. You've been a longstanding member of the House of Representatives, I think first elected back in 98. Share with us what led you to seek this position. Sure. You know, uh, once again, let me uh, just say a couple of things about myself in terms of why I'm running. First, I know what it takes uh, to make life better for all Californians. I know what it takes to, um, for instance, create good paying jobs. I started and owned and ran a small business for 11 years. I know what it takes to address the mental health crisis in California, which is huge. I started and founded a community mental health center. I'm a social worker, psychiatric social worker by profession. I know what it takes to make life better for people who have had many challenges or who are having many challenges, such as those that I've had. A single mom on public assistance, Medi-Cal, food stamps. Actually, I had to take my children to class with me because I could not afford childcare. I, over the years, have been a consistent progressive who stands up for what is right and to get the who gets the job done also. And I believe it's important that someone like myself who's had these lived experiences that no one else in this race has, had, has that uh, I have always fought to put people over profits. Uh, I've always fought to level the playing field for everyone and hold those in power accountable for their actions. And so I'm focused on tackling all of the issues, the affordability issues that Californians are facing each and every day, and also fixing and protecting our democracy, which I've been doing uh, all of my life, quite frankly. We're talking with Barbara Lee, Democratic member of Congress. Your 12th district includes Oakland, Berkeley, and Northern Alameda County, running for the U.S. Senate seat held for many years by Diane Feinstein. Uh, California, of course, uh, seeing significant problems of housing shortages and homelessness. Your district is, is a center for that, as is so much of Southern California. Um, the focus in homelessness and housing is largely state and local initiatives and funding and removing impediments to construction. So if you were elected to the U.S. Senate, what would you do? What do you think the federal government can do more to help with our housing crisis here? As I said, I know what it like, what it's like to uh, face many of the challenges that ha 
I have faced many of the challenges that Californians are facing. I've been unsheltered for a period in my life. And I know what this takes in terms of the federal government. We have to really begin to look at how we have an affordable housing strategy at the federal level that has as its basis housing is a basic human right. In the Senate, I would fight to make sure that one, we uh, address the building and have the federal government invest in more affordable housing strategies, such as the low-income housing tax credit. But also in California, so many people are working two and three jobs on minimum with a minimum wage, driving two and three hours a day. And so we have to make sure that people can afford to rent or purchase a home closer to their workplace. And so I have now, which I want to champion in the city, the Deposit Act, which would make the first and last month's rent security deposits available through an investment in, a, in an affordable housing revolving fund at HUD. Also, we need to expand the housing trust fund, which I had championed with um, Senator Sanders, where nonprofits can purchase housing and land and then reduce the rent or sell properties at a lower rate because the land is not included. We need to make sure we have a national eviction prevention policy uh, and a national, uh, which I've worked on, Renters Bill of Rights, because so much of what is taking place now uh, as it relates to our unhoused populations is they just can't afford the rents. And so we have to expand Section 8 vouchers, but we also must make sure that fair market rates by the federal government are paid to especially small landlords so that they can um, make sure that the rents are stabilized for those who are possibly uh, who possibly could be un become unsheltered and be evicted. And of course, mental health services. Finally, I'll just say if, if people have the unfortunate uh, life on the streets and have been evicted and are unhoused, then we have to make sure that we arrange for mental health services, support services, and making sure that they uh, get into safe and decent shelter and not be criminalized, which is what is taking place in so many communities around California and throughout the state. We're talking with member of Congress Barbara Lee, the Democrat, representing the 12th District, Oakland, Berkeley, Northern Alameda County, and candidate for the U.S. Senate seat held for many years by Dianne Feinstein. Congress member Lee, let's, let's talk about the economy more generally. Polls show Americans with continued high anxiety uh, about costs, including food, gas, and utilities. How how would you address those concerns if elected to the Senate? It's no secret that people, especially in California, are still struggling with the affordability crisis. What's driving it in California, one is the cost of housing. And so we have to make sure that housing becomes affordable. Childcare costs, I've worked day and night on, you remember Build Back Better, where we're negotiating child care provisions. We need to make sure that we invest in child care and child care operators because so many families, especially women, can't get into the workforce because they do not have the resources and cannot afford uh, child care. And yes, we have to raise not the minimum wage, not raise it to a another minimum, but we must raise it to a living wage. In my own district now, a family of four, which makes about $117,000, $118,000 a year, that is low income. 
that's being very vulnerable. Uh, and $117,000 and $118,000 in other states may not be necessarily uh, low income, but it is in many parts of California. And so we have to have a living wage so that people can afford to stay in California and can afford to live in California a decent uh, and a decent life where they're not only uh, surviving, but they're, they're tr uh, thriving. And so the federal government needs to invest in strategies that will reduce the cost of living and raise the minimum wage to a living wage. We're talking with 25-year representative of the House representing uh, Northern Alameda County, Berkeley, and Oakland. Barbara Lee joining us, candidate for the U.S. Senate, uh, providing additional financial support for Ukraine and Israel's war efforts is proving contentious. What is your position on aid for those two countries? Let me say that uh, it is important to recognize that my background, for those who don't know me, I have a deep and broad background in foreign policy and national security issues. We must look at global peace and security in a way that focuses on development, diplomacy, and of course, the military options going to always be there. Many of you know or don't know that I voted against the overly broad authorization to use force right after the horrific events of 9-11. I was the only one who voted against that that set the stage for forever wars. Uh, I said then, like I'm saying now, that uh, it could have could and did spiral out of control, which I'm extremely concerned about now as it relates uh, especially uh, to the Middle East. and. With regard to Ukraine, it is important that uh, we support the Ukrainian people. Putin is on a move on the move and is not disconnected to to tampering with our democracy here in the United States. Putin wants to erode democratic governments in Eastern Europe, but we have to remember that uh, Donald Trump and Putin uh, have many of the same beliefs around uh, the types of government that they want to uh, lead. Uh, and Donald Trump is a clear example of, of autocratic tendencies and autocratic perspectives about what the United States government should be. And so, yes, I support what is taking place in uh, Ukraine in terms of U.S. involvement and U.S. support. And financial and, support, yeah. And financial support, yes. And it's very important that uh, we make sure that we stand by the Ukrainian people. With regard to the Middle East, I have called for a uh, permanent ceasefire. I have condemned the Hamas attacks. Uh, Israel deserves to live in a neighborhood that's secure and not threatened by Hamas and other terrorist groups. But you do not address terrorism by killing 27, 28 thousand civilians. The rules of war need to be adhered to. The United States supports a two-state solution. The only way to a diplomatic and political solution that leads to two-state solution is through a permanent ceasefire. Let me, and that's been my position from day one, and we'll continue to stay there and believe that. We're talking with Congressmember Barbara Lee of the House of Representatives running for the U.S. Senate. 
So uh, the Netanyahu government uh, is saying it's non-negotiable, uh, at least they're saying this today, that Hamas needs to be removed from leadership in Gaza and the Israeli hostages released before there will be a ceasefire. Uh, do you agree or disagree with that stance? And, and, and do you think it, Israel could do other than hold out for those things? Well, I, I disagree, and I have called for the hostages to be released over and over and over again. And I'm very concerned that the continuation of this war and not not supporting a ceasefire is going to harm the hostages. And so if we're concerned, and I am about the release of the hostages, once again, I'm going to say we need a political and diplomatic solution leading to a two-state solution. And Netanyahu is totally opposed to that. And the United States has to take more leadership to make sure that uh, we use our leverage to ensure that the hostages are released and to ensure a political and diplomatic solution. The killing of 20, some 27, 28,000 civilians is catastrophic. Uh, you know, we have to think about the type of terror and the type of violence that this is creating against the Israeli people, against Israel as a result of, of this catastrophic uh, war. And in fact, uh, we need to fight for and raise our voices again with the administration to call for a permanent ceasefire so that we can release the hostages and so that we can support a diplomatic and political solution. And we see now well, it's escalating out of control, like I said, right after 9-11. It's spiraling out of control, and we have a responsibility to, to stop it. it. It sounds like, though, you you would be okay with Hamas continuing to represent Palestinians in Gaza. Is that correct? No, no, I would not be uh, content with that. I have condemned Hamas, and the Palestinian people uh, do not support Hamas. They're not the Palestinian people. They're a terrorist organization. And I, I believe the counterterrorism measures are in order. And I do not believe in any way that any terrorist group should be supported in any part of the world, including in the Middle East. We're talking with Congressmember Barbara Lee of Oakland and Berkeley, candidate for the U.S. Senate. The large numbers of asylum seekers at the U.S. southern border have become a, a big political challenge for the Democratic Party and for President Biden. What do you think the president should do, given that there's not a deal in Congress in, on how to respond? Well, the president is doing and has done everything he could do. He negotiated uh, an arrangement, a deal with uh, the Republicans in the Senate. And in fact, the Republicans in the Senate bailed. And that is just unconscionable. Also, border security without comprehensive immigration reform just won't work. That, that's really an important part of this. Uh, we have asylum seekers and we have asylum laws. Those laws should be adhered to. Uh, immigration should be, um, it, it should have as central to our framework, it should be orderly, it should uh, include due process, and it should be a humane. You know, California, we pride ourselves on uh, the the value of immigrants and their what they bring to our state, the families they work to make our state economy work uh, throughout the country. And this country was founded on the basis of valuing immigrants coming to our country. And this is really something that the president, I know, 
understands, but the Republicans in Congress don't. Uh, and immigrants are key to our economic uh, recovery in the United States. Again, the president has done everything he could do. All right. uh, the Republicans just will not do anything but use this as a political ploy to divide residents against immigrants and to make it appear that it's the president's fault. It's a political Donald Trump position that we saw emerged in the Senate, and it's a shame and disgrace. Representative Lee, we're, we're uh, almost out of time, but I want to give you an opportunity to take about 20, 30 seconds to tell our listeners to air talk here in Southern California why you think they should give you their vote for U.S. Senate. I would like to let the voters in Southern California know that uh, I know what it takes to make life better for everyone. I stand for what's right, even when it's uh, politically, you know, not the not the norm. When you look at my record, I'm ex an experienced legislator. I've been able to deliver for the people. I was able to work with President Bush, working in a bipartisan way to save 25 million lives who were suffering from HIV and AIDS. I built bipartisan coalitions to implement uh, protections for American privacy. I voted against the Patriot Act. I wow. have a history of fighting for people in California and delivering federal resources to communities that deserve their tax dollars being brought back to create jobs, opportunities, and services. Thank you so much, Congressmember Barbara Lee of Alameda County, Oakland, Berkeley. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Barbara Lee, first elected to Congress back in 1998 and one of the prime candidates for the U.S. Senate seat long held by Dianne Feinstein. Again, the interviews that we've done with Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, and with Adam Schiff, all members of Congress, can be found. The links to those at LAist.com slash VGP. That's voter game plan. LAist.com slash VGP. We have much more to come on Air Talk, including our TV critics who'll be with us to talk about a big week in television releases. And coming up, we'll talk about what's happening in Vegas to prepare for what is arguably the biggest event in that city's history. And it's used to big events. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Probably an overstatement to say the game itself is dwarfed by all that goes on around it, but certainly the time involved and the money spent on all the other activities around Super Bowl weekend are huge for the host city. And Las Vegas, a city that's used to very big events. Of course, it had F1 that it spent uh, more than a year uh, redesigning and improving its roads and finding all sorts of ways to accommodate international visitors for. You've, of course, got uh, all, the, all the number of hotel rooms that are available and parties to celebrate for guests that are arriving. We want to find out what's happening as Vegas prepares for the 330,000 visitors, some of whom have already arrived and others who will be there in the coming couple of days. And I thought it best to talk with my counterpart in Las Vegas, host of State of Nevada, the local interview public affairs show on KNPR, NPR member station, Joe Shaneman. Joe, good morning. Thanks for coming on with us. 
Great to be back with you. So, Joe, let, let, where does this stack up with all the other huge events that Vegas has hosted over the years? Everybody says this is the biggest. At first, it was the NHL and then the Stanley Cup last year and then F1. But this one, they say, is unprecedented. You mentioned 330,000. They're now estimating a half million people will be here. Oh, my goodness. Which would make it, the I think, the biggest weekend uh, for people as long as I've been here. And that's been about 25 years. Have room rates hit a historic high? Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, they passed the $2,000 mark in some of the hotels. You really, um, <laughs> if you know people, stay with them at their house <laughs> because I don't even know if there's rooms available anymore. I don't know if my in-laws are up for the visitors, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure family members are being called on. And, and Joe, I'm also wondering about all the events because I've been looking at the list of them. It, it seems like every celebrity in the uh, U.S. has some sort of a party or a product being pitched. It's oh, unbelievable. I, you are, are totally right. They have built really an entire entertainment infrastructure around this game. I'm not talking about the shows that are already here. That's U2, Adele. Uh, Christina Aguilera, but so, so much more. They're going to have the first hip-hop residency here at the uh, at the Virgin, Virgin uh, Casino Resort. There are going to be functions here. I mean, they're, they're even naming um, events like there's going to be a Taylor Swift karaoke at uh, <laughs> Area 15, which is this mega structure, which is really, really cool, off the strip. Um, there are these Super Bowl attractions where Rob Gronkowski, what's it called? Rob Gronkowski's, um, there's the Madden Bowl, Comedy Jam, uh, there's a gospel celebration, Gronk Beach. That's yeah, he has called. a pool party, I thought, which sounds massive. <laughs> yes. Billy Idol is going to be here. Uh, I, I'm going through, I'm scrolling through a list that I wrote because it's just, it's so much more. It's, you know, uh, and they they say the expected economic impact could be a billion dollars. The, the, the truth of that is nobody really knows. A lot of these economic impact statements are based on self-reporting. Somebody says, I'm going to, I'm going to spend $200 or a thousand dollars, but what it really comes down to, they actually don't know. It'll be months later when they, they talk in real terms about the economic impact. We're talking with Joe Shaneman, who hosts State of Nevada on NPR member station KNPR in Las Vegas. You might remember just a few weeks ago that Joe and I co-hosted an hour-long uh, dual state program talking about uh, housing that issues. Was that was really fun. And Joe and I are both hopeful we'll do more of those programs and talk about some of the issues in common with our, our two audiences. I, I also wonder about, you know, historically Vegas has been avoided by pro sports. And that uh, it wasn't that long ago, despite all the professional sports now that have arrived in Vegas. But does it seem odd to you, Joe, uh, as a resident for a number of years, to see uh, all, how all that's changed and the fear of being associated with gaming, how that's uh, waned so much over these years? Yeah, we, we just did a show on the Super Bowl uh, uh, earlier this morning. I found it weird to say there's a Super Bowl in Las Vegas. I've been a reporter here for a long time. I remember more than a decade ago calling the NFL for a comment about the fact that they would never allow Las Vegas to be mentioned during the Super Bowl and to not allow any Las Vegas advertisements during the Super Bowl. I never got a response from them. And then uh, when they legalized sports betting in the different states, the Supreme Court action, I think it's in 2016, 
that all started to change. And then about a year later, Nevada up, uh, approved a $750 million support for the Oakland Raiders to build a stadium here. And then um, within a couple of years, the NFL said, well, we're going to have the Super Bowl there someday. And then the NFL partnered with different gamb- sports books gambling sites. It's completely changed. This has become an incredible sports town in record amounts of time. I mean, just think about the decades, maybe the centuries that has taken other cities to get professional uh, hockey, basketball, base, bas- basketball is coming here. Um, football, we just got a new uh, professional vo- women's volleyball team. There is so much happening here. It, it's really kind of incredible. But, yeah, it's strange <laughs> to think of the NFL Super Bowl here. Yeah, and with the arrival of the Golden Knights, it just seemed like it changed everything with that NFL team. And from there, the the floodgates started. Uh, Joe, I, I also wanted to ask you about the field conditions because we've, we've had – uh, San Francisco 49ers who've complained about the conditions at the Running Rebels uh, practice facility UNLV uses, uh, while the Chiefs have been at the Raiders facility, which not surprisingly is a uh, more developed facility for an NFL team. Um, has that been resolved to the satisfaction of the Niners? I, I, I'm not sure about that. I, I know what you're talking about. I don't cover sports here regularly, but I read those stories. And to me, it sounded like the NFL was shrugging their shoulders and saying, you know, we've tested that field and it's fine. So, um, I, I think if they just went ahead and practiced on it. <laughs> and, and of course, uh, I know because the uh, grass field at Allegiant Stadium slides out on a tray just like the one at the stadium in Glendale, Arizona, used last year for the Super Bowl. That field ended up overwatered. I'm sure there's going to be great attention uh, paid to the quality of, of the grass in Allegiant come Sunday afternoon. Joe, it's great to talk with you at, again, and we'll find any excuse to team up and, and do these conversations. <laughs> that sounds great, Larry. I appreciate Have a good Good day. You too. Joe Shaneman, the host of State of Nevada, heard weekdays on KNPR, NPR member station in Las Vegas. Coming up on Air Talk, a look at the best of television. We're actually going to start with the Super Bowl because it is the biggest TV show of the year. We'll talk about its cultural influence and the amount of money surrounding it, as well as new shows on streaming and networks when we come back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Flash flood warnings across Coachella Valley. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm Aaron Stone, the climate emergency reporter at LAist. Desalination really should be considered as a last resort. I bring you the information and connections you need to understand, cope with, and prepare for the changes caused by the climate emergency. Potential for what's called land spouts, which are basically like mini tornadoes. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Reminder, Film Week coming up tomorrow at 10 o'clock. 
We have a lot on the docket with our critics, including the documentary Bob Marley, One Love. We'll hear about that. Uh, a film, a British horror film, Out of Darkness, and Lisa Frankenstein, which is a romantic horror comedy written by Diablo Cody, Zelda Williams, the director of Lisa Frankenstein. Those are just a few of the films. That's tomorrow, 10 o'clock, Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. But right now it's TV we talk about, and I'm very pleased to be joined by NPR TV critic Eric Deggins, who's actually in Southern California, not on the East Coast, because he's here for the Television Critics Association annual gathering, and Steve Green, regular TV critic as well, for us here on Air Talk. Uh, Eric, uh, just real quickly, uh, you've made the three thousand or so mile trek here for the. <laughs> yeah. um, what happens at TCA for those not familiar with the? Uh, that is such an expansive. Quite, I wish we had an all hour just to talk yeah. about that. You've got one but, minute. <laughs> I got one minute. Yeah. So basically, all the big TV platforms get together and. And they take uh, they each take a day generally, and they have a bunch of press conferences where they bring in the cast and the executive producers and the executives from these platforms to talk to journalists from around the country about what they have coming generally in the next six months. So we've had Apple TV Plus come in, we had AMC come in, we've had Hallmark come in. Today is Nat Geo, and we'll go through and we'll see you know NBC Comcast. We'll see a bunch of different yeah. great players. We had a set visit, uh, a couple set visits where. We went to Not Dead Yet and uh, 911. We're going to visit Abbott Elementary uh, on Saturday. It brings journalists in contact with the TV industry in a close way that if you're like me, I'm based in Florida. I don't get much of an opportunity yeah. to do that. It's a wonderful thing. I, I want to go to Abbott Elementary. Uh, uh, Steve, just quickly, your thoughts about uh, TCA, because you get sleep in your own bed, too. Uh, that, it, it's lovely. It's, it's right off the road from, from where I am. I, I, I appreciate it as a chance to sort of keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening. Uh, a lot of the, sh the questions that people ask are show specific, but I think that there's a lot of broader conversations about where the TV industry is going, uh, where particular networks are going, what streaming effects there are on on different networks and different shows. So I, I think it's, it's useful on a macro and a micro level, too. You know, the coolest thing is that we critics get to talk to each other. You know, Steve and yeah, I were bad. just talking before this and trading ideas about what we think is going on, and that helps a lot. I'm sure that's beneficial. We have some breaking news dealing with the film industry, uh -oh. and that is the Oscars are adding an Academy Award for casting directors coming up in 2026. Casting directors, of course, with an extremely important role in the production of films. So starting um, with uh, the 2026 Oscars, there will be a, uh, a new category for casting directors. So uh, that uh, very, very big news. We'll talk about that on Film Week uh, tomorrow as well at 10 o'clock. So let's uh, talk about the Super Bowl, the biggest television show there is yes. on CBS Network, streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Eric, uh, just your thoughts on on the significance that this TV program has taken on. Okay, well, first off, two big caveats. I don't know much about sports, and I don't know that much about Taylor Swift. So, you know, bear that in mind with everything that I'm saying. What about Usher? <laughs> exactly. Okay, I'll know a little bit more about Usher. But basically, um, this is poised to be the most watched episode of television in history. 
the second most watched episode of television in history was last year's Super Bowl. And we didn't have this whole Taylor Swift effect uh, where so many people who generally don't pay attention to sports have now sort of zoned in on the Super Bowl and they're wondering if she's coming from Japan, is she going to make it, how much are they going to show her? <laughs> and, and you know, one of the things that's masterful about the Super Bowl is that, um, you know, uh, people, advertisers and marketers figured out how to make the game attractive, the, the event of the game attractive to people who don't care about sports. Yeah. So sports fans show up for the game. Other people show up for the halftime show, which is Usher. They show up to see who's going to sing the national anthem, who's going to sing the Star Spangled Banner, who's going to, you know, really, you know, bring it. And then they show up for the commercials. And, and you know, what we're hearing now, we there's always been an increase in female viewers. So there's always been a sense that products for women have be, been more willing to step up. We're going to see more of that. That's not the Taylor Swift effect. I know everybody wants to think that. But, but that's this predates been, that. This, this predates that, although I think it's going to accelerate it. And, you know, uh, a, a little more um, conventionality in the advertising is what we're seeing. Uh, you know, people playing it a, a little more safe. Yeah. Uh, but in the same mix, we're going to see more female-oriented products. And I think we're going to see more of an emphasis on female power and appealing to women in some of the ads that we're going to see in the Super Bowl. Interesting. We're talking about the Super Bowl this Sunday, of course, uh, shortly after 3 o'clock on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. I have to think, as we were just talking with Joe Shaneman earlier about the game being in Vegas, that's only help promotion, it seems, because uh, it, it seems to me there's even more journalistic attention on it because so many people want to go to Vegas to cover the game as well. Let's talk about... Uh, the Apple TV Plus drama The New Look, which explores the rise of designer Christian Dior, Ben Mendelsohn, and Juliette Binoche, star in the series created by Todd A. Kessler. Steve, tell us about The New Look. Um, well, this uh, follows not just uh, Christian Dior, but Coco Chanel. Uh, it's a look at how different icons from the world of fashion navigated uh, life under occupation in World War II. Um, for uh, for the Christian Dior side, it also follows his younger sister and her efforts in the French Resistance, um, and uh, and sort of follows from that time up through uh, a, a pivotal point in Christian Dior's career. Uh, sort of sort of looking at, at a, a, a narrow uh, lens of 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 what he was able to do. Yeah. All right. What did you think of it, Eric? Uh, I thought it was really time? interesting because it brings home two things. Number one, there were people behind these storied uh, fashion names like Chanel. And, and Dior and Balenciaga, and you see the real people and the choices that they made. The other question is, what do you do when you're faced with toxic authoritarianism, and how do you respond to it in a way that you and your family are kept safe, but you also don't lose yourself or do things that you uh, would feel ashamed of later? And that's the question that this um, you know, these fashion designers are being asked to design clothes for the Nazis, and they all respond in different ways to that demand, and then they have to sort of account for what they, for the decisions they made later. And and that's the question that, uh, the, the question that's interesting to me that this show uh, asks, and of course they've got an amazing cast. Well, I was going to say, Juliet Binoche, yeah. want to watch anything she's in. Just and, and, and Ben principal. Mendelsohn, I'm a huge yeah, fan ben, of his Yeah, Ben's too. terrific. And, and John Malkovich. So. All and, right. We're talking about the 
new look on Apple TV Plus rated TVMA. The first three episodes of The Ten will release next Wednesday on Valentine's Day. The new look on Apple TV Plus. A Bloody Lucky Day is a South Korean thriller directed by Pilgam Sung. Uh, Steve, tell us about this story of, of a taxi driver who becomes entangled with a customer. Yes. Uh, so this one's quite a ride. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, down on his luck, timid taxi driver uh, going through a rough patch in his life. He's got family troubles. He's got money troubles. But then he gets a lucky sign in a dream that lets him know that, you know, things are maybe going to uh, get better. So the next day, things start trending upward. He's starting to make amends. He's starting to reconnect with his family. But then he accepts that four-hour cab ride offer from a mysterious gentleman who it turns out may or may not be a serial killer. Uh, So if that all sounds like uh, a a up and down emotional whiplash, it is, but I think that's part of the appeal of the show. Uh, Usually when you have shows that move between tones like that, it doesn't always feel like part of the same show, but here I think it really does. Uh, and and so you you have a first episode that feels almost like a like a 2000s cell phone commercial uh, where everybody, it's brightly lit, everybody's smiling, and then you do get that descent into madness at the end of the first episode and then throughout the rest of the season. We're talking about the Paramount Plus streaming a South Korean thriller, A Bloody Lucky Day. There are 10 episodes. All of them are out and streaming now on Paramount Plus. Taylor Tomlinson, Have It All, the third Netflix original comedy special of Taylor Tomlinson's. It's directed by Christian Mercado. Eric? Yeah, Taylor is such an interesting figure. She's a stand-up comic who uh, just turned 30, and she just got the job hosting this After Midnight, the show that replaced James Corden uh, right after Colbert on CBS. And now she has this Netflix stand-up special. I mean, you couldn't have planned yeah. it any better. You <laughs> it's know? it's like she gets announced, at 30. she takes over the show, and now she's got this Netflix special. And she's someone who built her following on social media, videos on TikTok and on social media. And so, you know, she's she's got young people who know who she she is and she's trying to funnel them into these more traditional outlets this this is a really great stand-up special I watched a lot of it in advance uh, she talks about anxiety she talks about um, you know her her fractured relationship with her parents she talks about dating she actually went on a dating app uh, you know after having a Netflix special out and she talks about that so so um, it's a lot of relatable comedy and it's sort of a pleasure to see a really talented comic kind of come into her own in this way and I just hope, you know, she manages to keep it together and, and keep doing what she's doing, which is being really funny and really relatable and, and, and just, uh, you know, breaking boundaries. Well, and, I, and I understand After Midnight, the CBS show that she's doing weeknights, is a reboot of um, a late night a Comedy Central series Chris yeah. Hardwick used to host. Yeah, it yeah. used to be called At it, That was called At Midnight, and that aired. Um, you, you had The Daily Show, and then I think you had Colbert, and then that would come on after that. And and uh, Chris Hardwick hosted it, and it's like a fake game show where they bring on comics and they crack jokes about uh, online culture, internet culture, uh, and and the, it really works when the comics can get loose and kind of improvise, and everybody's having fun with each other, and they realize this is not really a game show. And if and you know uh, it, the new version after midnight was a little stiff when they started, but I think they're understanding now that the heart of the show and the fun of the show is letting these comics bounce off each other and get really loose and Taylor is a really great enabler of that you know even though she's very young she's been a stand-up comic for a long time and she has the respect
respect of, of much more established comics, and she knows uh, how to you know make things fun and and poke fun at people without being mean. And it and it's all you know creating this vibe where it's just a hang, you know. And I think they understand that more and more every week that they do it, and the show gets better. Well, Corden was able to establish that breakout, you know, meme friendly, social media friendly carpool karaoke, which even if there weren't huge numbers of people who watched his full show. That got a lot of hits. And and I, I wonder, is this new program, if either of you have had a chance to see many episodes, friendly in that way for, for adapting it to social media? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to what Eric was talking about, finding that balance between having things that feel overly scripted and, and overly joke-written versus having that that sort of spontaneous improv feel to it. And so I think when you find that sweet spot, and, and you, you have those moments that seem to come out of nowhere and seem to just a- arrive in someone's comedic brain. Like, that's what I think translates to social media rather than the here's the overly worked uh, thing we workshopped for a day and then gave to somebody before. I, I always tell people when a show like this, a talk show like this debuts, you want to watch the beginning just to see where they're starting and then watch it six months from now because it's a long process. It took, uh, Conan O'Brien will admit, it took him three years to get that show to the point where it was consistently funny and they felt like they kind of knew what they were doing. Now, most shows don't get that long anymore, but you got to give them more than a month or two. And so, you know, I, 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 I've, I've sort of checked in here and there because they put clips of the show up on YouTube and I feel like they're making progress. And, you know, so I'm interested to see what it will look yeah. like in six months. Yeah, you are so right. And we are an instant gratification of viewership, but you are so right. It takes time to really find the rhythm. Of, there's a whole rhythm to it. And to find that is, is you know, not going to be there out of the gate. Taylor Tomlinson, Have It All, the Netflix stand-up special, her third for the streamer. It's rated TVMA. And and it premieres next Tuesday, February 13th. Coming up, we'll hear about another Netflix series, One Day, which is a British romance, and Welcome Home Franklin on Apple TV+, Plus, which is an animated TV special. We'll continue with our critics. Joining us are Steve Green and Eric Deggins, TV critic for NPR. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LA, State 89.3. I'm Larry Mantles. Great to have Eric Deggins in studio with us because he's in town for the Television Critics Association in Pasadena. So we're taking advantage of, of that. And Steve Green joining us as well, who we get in studio every time because he's here in Southern California. We're talking about the best of television this week. Next up, the Netflix series from the UK, One Day. It's a romantic drama and it stars Leo Woodall and Ambika Mode. Nicole Taylor is the creator of this series. Steve, please tell us about it. So uh, some listeners might remember a film from 2011 called One Day starring Anne Hathaway. Uh, this is drawn from the same source material, but it takes a, uh, a a different approach to that idea. So in in the film, two people have a chance meeting. They make a vow to spend that same day every year with each other, but not see each other for the rest of the 364 days of the year. Uh, the show, this show, takes that idea but checks in with two people who have a chance meeting at the same day every year even though they continue to see each other and they continue to spend time with each other so it's a slightly different approach um and i think this does 
uh, and and I think Eric might agree that that we appreciate TV shows that take advantage of an episodic form that it's not just a ten hour movie. Yeah. And so in this show, each episode is a different year. So they meet in 1988, and then every episode after that follows them on July 15th of whatever year comes after that. Uh, so I I think it's it's a it, it's a pretty savvy way of using the same hook, but but really making it work for a TV show. And it's only a decade long, so the aging up of the actors doesn't have to yeah. be extreme. Yeah, I, I think the season runs fourteen episodes in all, oh, but 14. but it but it's it's yes, it, it is it is following over enough time to where you get a sense of how these people have changed, um, but not too much to where you're having to have the same people play themselves. 20, 30 years in the future. You've just given me a segment we should do on our TV talk in the segment. Which series have best utilized that episode format, sure, as, as you say? Uh, we're talking about One Day on Netflix, a romantic drama, all 14 episodes premiering today. Welcome home, Franklin, on Apple TV+. Plus. You know Franklin, of course, from Peanuts, uh, the animated TV special created by Rob Armstrong and Scott Montgomery. Eric, please tell us about it. So this is the origin story for Franklin. <laughs> and what I uh, loved about this and about the idea of this, um, people may remember, we even did a story about it on NPR, that there was some discussion about Franklin uh, during the Peanuts Thanksgiving special where um, when, when they all get together for Thanksgiving dinner, all the Peanuts kids are on one side of the table and Franklin is on the other side of the table. And Franklin is the only black character. And so, you know, there was some concern about about what that visual was sending and the fact that Franklin is such a minor character and we don't find out much about him. And so this is is a is a an episode that's completely focused on telling you who Franklin is and how he came to meet the Peanuts gang and in particularly how how he came to befriend uh, Charlie Brown. And it turns out his dad was in the military, moved around a lot. Uh, and so he had to get good at making friends quickly. But when he tries to use all those techniques that his grandfather taught him to make friends, he finds it doesn't work so well in the Peanuts crew. <laughs> and so he's got a challenge where he's trying to he's trying to be friends with a bunch of people who seem kind of odd and he can't quite figure them out. And uh, and then, you know, he befriends Charlie Brown and they decide to embark on a project together. And it's challenged by the fact that Charlie Brown always seems to come last. So <laughs> so it's a really, you know, it's a way of centering the show on a black character. He's he's black in a way that's not sort of obvious and and stereotypical, uh, although his music tastes are kind of like a 50-something black guy. I mean, like he's in the well, John... Well, don't knock that. He's, in the, he's <laughs> in the John Coltrane. I mean, I'm a 50-something black guy, and I'm just kind of like a little kid who likes John Coltrane. Okay, I'm not I'm not sure about that. But, but it was delightful. And, and so, um, you know, Franklin finally gets his due, uh, and as, uh, you know, a, a black man who grew up with Peanuts characters sort of wondering where I fit, or somebody like me would fit in that universe, it's a nice way for young kids. It's made for young kids. It's not made for adults. It's a nice way for young kids to see, oh, you know, I, I, there's a place for me there. And there is a story that reflects my, my story, not just being a person of color, but also being a, a, a child of a military family where you move around a lot. And then, uh, you know, wanting to stick in a place and have regular friends and the challenge of making 
new friends and a place where you stick out. All of that is stuff that, you know, uh, a lot of kids can relate to, I think. You're talking about this being a, a Franklin the character's origin story, just an interesting local tie to the actual origins. Uh, Charles Schultz uh, creating Franklin, our, our former editor here, uh, recently retired Paul Glickman. His mother, Harriet Glickman, is the one who contacted Charles Schultz and said, you really need to have a black character. It's really important. Wow. And and so Harriet started a correspondent with Schultz. He created Franklin as a result of that. And uh, I had the chance to know Harriet for many, many years. And it's it's a remarkable story, the actual urging that, him to do wonderful. this. And, you know, as people of color sometimes, particularly in the 60s and 70s, you would see a show that would add a black character or have a couple black characters but the show wasn't really invested in telling their stories. You didn't learn much about them except that they kind of were there. And so now it's it been interesting to see these projects. If you watch the Star Trek series Strange New Worlds, one of the things that's so interesting about it is it tells you her story. And we get her backstory and we find out where she came from and what her family was like. And, you know, she almost didn't stay in Starfleet, you know. And 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 so now we're getting that with Franklin, where and and it's it makes all all kinds of sense. If you want to reintroduce these storied brands to younger people, you really have to reflect the world that they're living in, and the world that they're living in is much more multicultural. And people of color have agency, and their stories get told too. And so it's great to sort of go back to these old brands and say, hey, let's pick out this character that we don't know much about. Let's tell you a little bit more about him and talk about why he's so special. Yeah, and as you and I have – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I Steve, say, yeah. Like, like the Apple, I feel like the Apple Peanuts uh, series have done a really good job of doing this with a lot of different characters. Uh, you know, I feel like we're in an age where streaming services are using different TV properties as sort of commodifying nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in the, the Peanuts shows that I've watched on Apple, you don't get that feeling. I think there's a genuine heart and a genuine appreciation for what people like about this. I want Pigpen's story. Well, well that, that, that's probably that might be I would, I'd be surprised. <laughs> Pigpen does make an appearance here. That oh, is good, pretty good. Funny. Yeah, I love... Hey, gentlemen, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, you coming in and talking with us about the best of TV. And Eric, next time we'll talk with you from 3,000 miles away, but... Who knows? Got, I might sneak back into yeah, town. You've got you an open know. invitation. <laughs> Eric Deggins, Thank NPR you. TV critic, and Steve Green, TV critic here in Southern California, both join us regularly. I want to take a moment to thank our tremendous AirTalk production team. We're led by senior producer Matt D'Angelo-Antonio. Our producers are Lindsay Wright, Lucy Kopp, Manny Valladares, and Michael Goldsmith. Our apprentice news clerks are Tamar Fagan and Jason Rodriguez, and our technical director, tremendous engineer, Evelyn Boca Negra. My thanks to them. They are so great to work with. I learned so much from them and uh, it's just, it's a pleasure. I look forward to seeing them every morning, bright and early. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Have a terrific rest of your day. I'll be back with you tomorrow at 10 for Film Week. Austin Cross here at 9 for Air Talk tomorrow. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.